0: The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is Is AV
1: Nation. Nation. This is AV Nation. This is is AV Week. Episode
0: 141, recorded Saturday, May 3rd, 2014. Pandora's Box. AV Week is brought to you by Middle Atlantic Products and their TechPed
2: Technology Pedestals middle atlantic products what great systems are built on
1: ready av av week performing scan online this is av week
2: And welcome to another edition of AV Week. I am George Tucker, your host for today. Tim is away on business. Uh, We've been having a fun technology day today. A bunch of integrators having some fun. My name is George Tucker. We're going to have some guys joining us in a minute. But before that, I'm going to try and connect our friend Joel, who uh, asked to join us. And Google is not being happy. No, it's not doing it. Okay. Joel will know in just a minute as I disconnect him that uh, that's not going to work. So let's start again. I am George Tucker, your host, and I am joined today by Charlie Jones. He is the area sales manager for Sennheiser. Glad to have you on, Charlie. Thank you, George.
3: Happy to be here.
2: Yeah. And Charlie was helping me on the uh, offline version of this, trying to get everybody together. All right, also joining us today is Dave Parada. He is Chief Operation Officer of PSP Surgex. Good to have you on, sir.
0: Glad to be here. It's ESP Surgex, and glad to be here, George. Thanks for having me.
2: And you'll find out I'm renowned for doing that the first couple of times. My apologies. No worries. Pointable in my head. I don't know what it is. But uh, I'm going to correct that as we go. All right. So it's been a very busy news week this week for stuff. One of the first things I want to start with is a hot topic that we've all been talking about, and it's iHealth Telepath Policy. Healthcare is the new AV market, and it is something we all need to get into, and I've just had a... My apologies, gentlemen. Stand by. I've just had something go bad. You can still not
3: with, a right? problem. You know, George. Uh, I, I was looking over this article uh, about the the new uh, trying to embrace telemedicine, and, uh, and and I agree. I think uh, as an industry, we've really got to get onto the whole uh, healthcare scene, right? I mean, people are getting older. The baby boomer generation is, is aging. Of course, they all want to to age in place. Nobody nobody wants to be sent off to the home. Uh, And so I think a big part of that is going to be figuring out how technology could be used uh, for telemedicine. But the big thing that's going to come up over and over again, and I'm not sure that we've got our our hands fully wrapped around, is the the security aspects of that. Uh, You know, you ask anybody that's in the healthcare field, and the the big thing that ties up a lot of their time and resources is dealing with the whole, uh, you know, Health Information Privacy Act, uh, you know, HIPAA. And things like that, and stuff like the recent bug that was discovered that affects all versions of Internet Explorer, I think is is going to make a couple people apprehensive about uh, trusting their their medicine and their uh, medical private details to uh, to the interwebs.
2: Yeah, I mean there there is that, but this is the way that we're going, right? I mean, healthcare is being decentralized in many many ways, uh, and the enable to. In, in order to take on all of the clients that they may need to take on telemedicine and especially the video introduction of it is an essential part wouldn't you think
3: I agree uh, you know the question is of course uh, to to what uh, to what degree do we take this uh, you know we, we've seen uh, a lot of call centers be shifted offshore because uh, it's easy to do thanks to uh, the, the Connected globe that we live in, uh, you gotta wonder. Uh, you know, are we gonna get to the point where uh, maybe you're you're connected to the doctor that's in, you know, Mumbai or somewhere, uh, because uh, it's gonna save your HMO a little bit of money? Uh, do you think people are gonna be okay with that?
2: Mm. Well, it, it is it is a uh, it is a concern, absolutely. Uh, Dave, let me throw this to you. Although it's not, you guys are power centered, mm-hmm. among other things. But why not just put it on top of? Say another existing service like Links or Join.me or any of those kind of things. Would you see an issue with that?
0: Uh, you know, I'd probably mimic Charlie's concerns with doing something like that.
2: Yeah, it is. It is a um, a, know, a very tense and tentative thing to do. Although, and I don't know how much. As much as I love online stuff, I wonder how much I would trust the doctor, as uh, Charlie said. <laughs> how much I would uh, trust the doctor. Over the teleconference to cure me of something, or at least diagnose
1: something. But it, that... but
0: it does, but it does allow, you know, it does allow probably much more access, where, you know, in in the past people wouldn't have access to that type of healthcare. So it does, it does expand the level of, of you know, Dave, diagnostic health Yeah,
3: Dave, Dave brings up a good point. You know, I, I'm looking at it a little bit selfishly from the standpoint of I live near a big enough city that I can pretty much see a specialist on on anything that may go wrong but but Dave's got an excellent point there the guy that lives uh you know somewhere a little more remote or you know maybe uh just where it's a 3 or 4 hour drive and their mobility limited uh that this could be a, a a real breakthrough for them to be able to see some of the specialists they need t- need to be able to see for their health care without having to drive all the way you know to New York City or or to Chicago or to the Mayo Clinic to see these folks
2: mm yeah it's it's true it's true uh, well, you know, and during Infocom, they had one of those robots walking around, it was a video <laughs> conferencing robot. And they were using it and promoting it for medical uses. And it fascinated me that that was also what they were doing when they couldn't get to you because they were 1,000 miles away, but they also couldn't get to you because they were in another part of the campus. But they could remotely check in on you. It's fascinating that that might also be another venue for us to explore and be suppliers of.
3: You know, I, I, I don't know that uh, that we're going to initially see people being completely diagnosed remotely, but I, I think that it, it could be a fantastic tool for, for like you're saying, the, the post-surgery follow-up, the post-procedure follow-up, where it's just, you know, we've all had to go to the doctor where we drove out there, walk in there, he sees us for all of two minutes and say everything's still doing all right, great, yep, you're done, and it was kind of a waste of time for everybody. I think this could be a, a, a great way to make everybody more efficient.
2: Mm, it's, a, it's an interesting new market, although I wonder if there's special considerations for the medical world. I know that when I worked for a control manufacturer a lot of the screens had to be biomass impervious <laughs> and stuff like that, which was a very pleasant thought, mind you. <laughs> uh, and you're like, okay, you know, when they come in for service, let's make sure that uh, everybody has the gloves on. Um, Dave, let me throw this one to you though. Are there power considerations when we're dealing with medical institutions? Besides backup, are we looking at something between, say, shore power and something else?
0: There are, yeah. There's power considerations as there are with any other uh, diagnostic or, or you know, electronic-intensive equipment, you know, microprocessor-intensive equipment because they can all be affected by power anomalies. So there are issues, you know, for example. A good example is the diagnostic imaging devices where, you know, doctors rely on those electronic images to diagnose a patient and we've actually seen where those images can be affected by dirty power so the doctor reads an image and the power is affecting the way he reads the image and he's actually seen when he has clean power he gets a different image to the point where he might even diagnose or miss something because of that image so that's that's an example of why it can be important to have clean power and understand your power issues and then and, and going further down the road the equipment's very expensive and having that equipment damaged by power anomalies you know could result in you know a critical life and death situation where you either have it available or not you know for for treatment that's very interesting.
2: I never really thought that the power would actually affect the image quality that that they would see, but I guess that makes sense in the video world. It would.
3: It well, would it, think, think about it, George. How often has the doctor shown you that 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 little blurp on the uh, the image and said, "Yeah, this is the thing," and you're like, "Really?" Because uh, uh, to me, it looks like a smudge.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and how many cases have there been when they said, "Oh, that's not cancer." What you think? <laughs> yeah. yeah. one told you to take that off. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's very, very interesting. Um, Dave, I'll ask you though, just out of curiosity, with you know the screens being biomass impervious, have you ever had to deal with that kind of medical qualification?
0: We haven't. No, not not with the, not with power protection. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Wrap it in the in the screen and yeah. stuff.
3: Um, For- Fortunately, you can usually stick their power stuff, I think, uh, underneath the bed or out of the yeah. blood spray path.
2: Out of, out of <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, somewhere in a closet. You know, I, we may have just had Joel join us. Joel, are you there?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I no,
2: look at that. Uh, Joel Bilheimer, he is Vice President, System Integration for Pershing Technologies, amongst other titles that add to your card, No.
1: Uh, one or two uh, chief uh, information security officers, probably the the one we're here to talk about today, maybe. But um, my my apologies to the group for being late. Um, technical difficulties, which I'm sure everyone will laugh that the IT guy had technical difficulties. So,
2: That's all right, you joined us even though we had technical difficulties on our side as well. And Charlie jumped in and covered for me while okay. I was trying to get the uh, system to not crash. That was a good one. <laughs> Mine was the Microsoft going, "Yes, we're going to update you now." Yeah, thanks. That was not fun. Uh, well, we were just talking, uh, Joel, about the healthcare market and how they are now putting out some laws, or proposing laws, that would require video to be part of the initial consultation, whether remote or even in-house. Have you uh, seen this as part of the new market, uh, especially for the IT information area? Uh,
1: absolutely. And I, th- this, I assume, is coming off of the the recent State Medical Board group, the, the yeah. Federation of State Medical Board uh, policy adoption. Um, you know, I, we think that this is actually a, a really strong move. Um, one of the One of the interesting things about, uh, and I'm sure you've talked about, HIPAA and all the information protection considerations. Uh, HIPAA, of course, being a federal policy, um, like quite a lot of federal policies, sort of describes what they think you should do, but they don't actually tell you how to do it. Um, There's uh, there's not a lot of actual practical implementation uh, guidelines built into the HIPAA rules. So what... um, so what it looks like the the Federation of State Medical Boards has done is kind of taken that and said, okay, we, for for the burgeoning area of telemedicine, which particularly impacts small providers and especially rural healthcare providers, um, you know, where where the nearest doctor may be 20 or 30 or 100 miles away from their from their patient, um, telemedicine is, is obviously a booming area, particularly with all of the cloud services that are available, you know, jeans. Google those types of things. So, um, so what they've done is they said, "Okay, we know that you're starting to use these technologies, and those are good things. But you need to be mindful of the patient privacy issues, the uh, the truth and lending issues. Well, not lending, but uh, you know the Hippocratic considerations." So, so, so the uh, state medical board adopted uh, a set of guidelines for service providers to actually kind of try and help them. Uh, implement these things, because keep in mind, especially again in the rural areas or for the small providers, you're talking about an office that might have 10, maybe 15 employees. They are not information technology experts. They are not information security experts. They're not video conferencing experts. They are doctors, and that's what they do. So uh, so this is an attempt to kind of give them a little bit of help, in, uh, particularly in the online areas where there, there are a lot of services that are popping up to, uh, to assist. Uh, patients and service providers with this.
2: And, and what does that do for the integration of AV and IT? Do you see this being more in the hands of IT and less in AV, or is there room for the combination of the two to to coalesce?
1: I, I think there's definitely uh, there's definitely room for the the two sides. And, and frankly, I don't like. Let, uh, let, let me wear my heart on my sleeve for a minute.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't
1: like the A-V-I-T dichotomy. I think it's one large communication system or, or communication enterprise. And, and so I, I see them as, uh, as two sides of an extremely similar coin. So, but that, that having been said, um, I think for, for smaller service providers where, you know, they can, they can use a, a Google Plus type service, or you know Microsoft Link, or again Bluejeans, any of the cloud-based services. I think that's where this policy is mostly aimed at: is is to try and codify some of those rules because there's very very specific rules about financial disclosure and uh, r- uh, re- relationships that service providers have to have with manufacturers or possibly even with the telemedicine service provider. So um, so that's that's what those guidelines are attempting to, to codify. But that having been said. I think that the the audiovisual industry, the infocom industry, if you will, um, definitely can take take these guidelines and apply them to, say, physical implementations, uh, hospitals, academic environments, because the state medical boards certify all of those types of systems. It's not just you know you know Doc Smith down the street, you know, it's it's the state hospital systems. So, so it, it provide while it is mostly targeted again at online service providers, those rules can be applied to much larger uh, implementations as well. And if you're, I, I would say to any AB service provider, if you're not looking at uh, the medical vertical or um, or you know verticals, vertical channels or customers that are that are related to, to medicine or or health or telehealth, um, you're missing out. Because there, that, is, that is probably the single largest area of growth in our industry over the next, I would say, decade.
2: And the next question I would ask you in that, because this came up with us earlier, is from your IT perspective, especially in healthcare, why not use just Microsoft Links or Join.me or any of those other services that provide secure, as they say, right, uh, conferencing?
1: Right, I, I, I can visualize the air quotes that you put there. <laughs> um, so, the um, the issue that that those services have, and and from from a visual diagnostic perspective, they're actually great. I mean, I, I can see you right now, George, and I'm sure if I had passed even a D plus in biology, I would be able to tell you that you're looking great, and you know, hope those allergies are clearing up. Um, but for for the visual and auditory capabilities that these services provide, and, and and the policy very specifically outlines that it says, you know, they're capable of doing it. That's that's not the problem. The problem is that if you go to uh, join me, for example, it, you have no idea who the person you're talking to really is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no certification for that. Join me doesn't register you George Tucker as George Tucker you know, MD uh, they have no idea where you are uh, they have no idea what your knowledge base is so, so what the the medical boards are trying to do is create uh, I believe is create a certification process by which uh, probably third party service providers or, or certification uh, boards can come in and say ah okay here's the list of doctors that we have that um, that we have validated, uh, you know, in terms of their credentials, in terms of patient feedback, in terms of meeting, you know, uh, patient electronic health record privacy requirements. Um, here's all the disclosure statements that uh, that they've provided to us or that we've been able to generate for them. Um, and oh, by the way, we might happen to use Google or Link or join me, but that's that's probably going to be a branded. Uh, you know, sort of third-party or white-label type service. Um, you know, for may, maybe not. They, they, they might have the ability to, to merge some of those, um, or they might partner up with again, like a Blue Jeans or or a MeriAl or something like that. You know, Clearsie. But um, but it's it's really it's really ensuring that the line of communication uh, between patient and doctor is uh, maintains its integrity and that the, the patient has knowledge that the doctor, first of all, knows what he's doing, and second of all, that the patient's information is going to be protected. That's, mm-hmm. that's what they're trying to clarify.
2: Right, so there might be some options for them there, but it still doesn't take out of our hands the stuff that we'll need to do, because it needs to be secure.
1: To be Ab- to... Absolutely, absolutely. So, so I, think, I think there's definitely... That's part of the reason why we, we, we really like that, uh, that move by the boards um, as a service provider ourselves, um, we think that opens up a lot of opportunity, um, and of course, since it's the, it's not one state doing it. This is a, now a national standard that all state service providers uh, have have agreed to support. So,
2: all right, and that's an active that is live that is
1: now. Uh I believe so. I'm I will confess I am not a world's greatest expert on state mm. medical board policy adoption procedures. So uh I would be willing to bet that it probably has to be san- uh sanctioned uh to, to some extent, but um you know, there may be a comment period or something like that, but by all indications that um this is sort of a a new a new age for uh for the state boards. So
2: mm. Interesting. Well, moving on from from what's coming new to something we've probably all had to deal with. The worst oscilloscope user manual of all time. This comes from the EE Times site. And I picked this one because, well, we've all had this experience where we've had to explain something to someone. Whether that is because we were trying to help them get through an integrated system we built and delivered, or whether we supply a product. Doing the manual is really one of the hardest parts. We've seen manuals where you know they are directly translated from being the engineering specs that they gave to the engineering department to do. It will do the following. It shall have X amount of processes, et cetera, et cetera, and that shall be accessed by button on the left. (laughs) Charlie, I'm going to throw this to you since I think you have some of the the experience here in, in doing stuff like this. How do we make our manuals better, not just for you and me, but for the end client, without having them to call you, isn't that the end game? Is they don't have to call us?
3: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, George. I mean, uh, you know, I I in in a previous life actually uh, worked for Mr. Dave Parada there at ESP SearchX doing uh, tech support. So- Uh, And and you would get these calls from people that, that, uh, yeah, I mean, a big part of it, you know, fell into the category of, uh, you know, uh, RTFM, read the freaking manual, uh, where it was obvious that you could tell them you could quote you know scripture and verse exactly where in the manual they could find that bit of information uh... but sometimes people either didn't read it or didn't have it accessible which i think uh... at the end of the day you know as a manufacturer that does come back on to us in that we need to make sure that the manuals are available, accessible, and, and, and approachable for for the average customer and or anybody that may end up with your product. Um, you know, one of the things that that we've been really working on at Sennheiser is is trying to make sure that all of our our manuals and things are are friendly for mobile devices whether it's iPads whether it's uh, Android tablets um, because we understand that the world doesn't really revolve around you know dead trees anymore uh, you know you, you you go in and you meet with a lot of uh, you know whether it's dealers consultants and users they don't want the manual they don't want the manual they don't want the catalog they want the way uh, the ability to quickly and easily access the information um, which for a manufacturer is difficult because, one, we need to support a couple different uh, formats, whether it's iOS or Android or Windows. But then, two, uh, you know, we have to make sure that we keep some of that stuff available and accessible on our websites years after we don't really want to even support that product anymore. Uh, but that's something that as an industry, we're really, really bad about. You know, we out with the old, in with the new, let's move on to the newest widget. And the fact is, uh, you know, and George, uh, I'm sure you can relate from your control system days, a lot of this product lives on long after we wish it would disappear. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so we got to be able to make sure that the customers can still find out what they the information they need on that.
2: Well, and Dave, I'll ask this to you. Is it just about writing better manuals or is it embracing newer technologies to get across that point? And and to that end, I guess I'm asking, how deep do you go? Do we write a manual that explains the basis of power and and how it runs? Yamaha used to do that with some of their manuals about how audio and they had little figurines uh, about how to sound. sound
1: The sound reinforcement handbook. Right,
2: right. And how far, or even some of their manuals are, some of their amps had that.
0: How How far do we go and what's the limit? That that's a great point because you have with with the type of equipment, especially that we sell now, that is more intelligent than just a dumb power protector. Yeah, the levels of users, you know, are all over the place, from you know the secretary that's plugging it into the wall to the AV integrator to the engineer to the diagnostic technician. So yes, we we have that challenge of writing our manuals in various formats, and we do that. So you're correct. We have to provide them in various formats, both either online hard, hard copies. And when we say hard copies, we, you know, we found it necessary to provide, for example, the full manual online and maybe a quick start guide that comes with a unit that gets the user up and running very quickly. It's very pictorial, shows exactly what to do to get the unit up and running uh, so that the basic functions can be used. And then the more advanced functions, yes, you'd have to go to the manual. And then what we've started to do also, because of our a lot of our equipment now, uh, runs with a level of software interface. We've embedded the manuals into the software, so there is an icon hmm. in the software that has the manual and maybe some, some pointers or questions, and even to the level of you know, as you stated, a like technical troubleshooting guys how guides. How do you use and interpret power anomalies? What is the what is the uh, cause and effect, and how do I fix it? So we started to do that also. So yeah, it was a great point about the, you've got to you've got to embrace the different levels of user now, and as the equipment gets more sophisticated, you need to be able to provide you know much more in depth um, information about what the equipment is doing.
2: And let me uh, one more to that. Then from the manufacturer standpoint, do you think that maybe producing an amp uh, an amp an app <laughs> can can benefit maybe a troubleshooting app, sort of like the old elect- electrical handbook we used to get or the little uh, the technology handbooks we used to, the black thing that we used to all get? Yeah. Is that an yeah. option or is it does that become just too much to keep up? with
0: no, absolutely, because, you know, a lot of the technicians that use our devices, for example, you know, are using tablets and mobile devices. So, yes, a, 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 an app to help them diagnose uh, power problems or to, to use the equipment, yeah, that's a, a – that be a fantastic addition to our our, our you know, volume of, of manuals and technical information. Hmm.
1: And, and I want to say that I think Fluke may already have something like that uh, for for
0: multimeter use, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah, I believe they do.
2: And so, Joel, I'm going to put this to you, actually, uh, as I put your website up so we can have an image for you <laughs> when we talk. So, Joel, from the integration side, though, we don't always provide the best manuals as integrators. We try, and on the commercial side, it's more common than, say, the residential side. But what is your policy for providing an operations manual, in this case, for your installations? How far do you go? Does it include video, that kind of thing?
1: Um, that's it's a great question. Um, it really is going to depend on customer need, and then, of course, un- unfortunately, as all things on the integration side do, on whatever the con- contractor, the scope demands, um, we, we have gone so far as to provide uh, actual video manuals to certain customers. Um, typically, that would be uh, if we're providing a client-side application um, or a management application on the server side. Where we can do a series of screen captures uh, in in live live time, um, real time, excuse me, to with an audio overlay to say, okay, now you know, click up here, you know, follow my mouse, those those types of things. We have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's it's very difficult to do that for systems that are closed. However, and, and when we say closed, we mean a closed network like. A typical, you know, Crestron or, or AMX type control system, those types of things, where, where there isn't a server, there's probably no client, something like that. Um, typically, with that, you know, the, the traditional way to do it has always been, you know, take screenshots, turn them into PDFs, uh, you know, provide the push button here type uh, type narrative. The, the the challenge that, that we see, um, and this is both as a service provider and also as a service consumer, for you know uh, a Microsoft application or uh, you know a Cisco uh, switch or a Dell server or something like that, is very very rarely can the service provider anticipate all use cases and and, and Dave I, I think this goes back to your point as well um, where you can provide uh, a baseline where which will probably cover 80-85% of most implementations most use cases you can provide an FAQ or a wiki that might add in another 10% or something like that but I'll be honest the really tricky ones, the ones where I'm on site or or Dave Charlie, you know your your technicians are on site, banging their head against the wall because it's just not working, or you have a customer calling, you know, banging your technician's head against the wall in an unfortunate case. Um, the those are the ones that no amount of documentation that a service provider or a vendor is going to be able to generate is going to is going to cover it. You know that's that's an instant tier one tier two escalation. Um, I'll be honest. The way that I get through most of those is not actually by contacting the manufacturer. It's usually if it's, if the manufacturer is large enough, it's usually working through um, online forums. Um, you know that uh, like VTC talk. Uh, you know for, for video conferencing, um, just banging around the Microsoft forums. Uh, their the knowledge base. Um, obviously, if a manufacturer's it, it, you know supports a, relative, a smaller market typically, it's going to be difficult for them to create that kind of forum, but that doesn't mean that somebody else hasn't run into that issue somewhere online. Um, that, and that's typically where, where the really thorny issues uh, get worked out, um, because again, there's just no way to document them. And, and going back to, to Charlie's point earlier, um, which I thought was actually a really good one, um, the, the, the AV industry typically does not do a very good job of end of life issues. Um, they don't declare products to be end of life, um, there's, like you said, you know, products will linger um, in, in the field and the manufacturer will sort of say, well, you know, we don't really support it, but I could probably find a guy in the back who built the <laughs> source code for it maybe 10 years ago, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's, that's actually very different from a lot of IT service providers. Um, you know they'll just take products. You know, I mean, Windows XP. I mean, you know, was officially declared end of life. You know, three weeks ago, and that Internet Explorer vulnerability that just came out, it won't ever be fixed if you have Windows XP. Microsoft's okay with that. They, you know, they gave them. You know, they gave everybody about two years worth of notice, and you know that. They're, now they're large enough, but they also they have other business needs. They cannot continue to support those types of things. So you know, I, I think that's something that our industry needs to consider is, is taking a more active role in saying, look, I'm sorry, I love you, I want to keep your business, but you know, you're working on a platform that's 10 years old. I can't support that.
2: And, well, sometimes we want that, like uh, Windows Me and Vista, and not to name a few, Clippy, uh, <laughs> things like that, to get rid of. You know, we're ha- we're happy when they say yes. We need to get rid of it. Exactly. Yes. Um, well, let me just take a quick moment here because we have a sponsor. AV Nation has a sponsor. AV Nation is sponsored exclusively by Middle Atlantic Products. The Middle Atlantic has designed a line of technology pedestals that make your conference room installation much easier. The Techped series is a conference of table support systems for maximizing space and promoting cable and thermal management. There are lots of different finishes to choose from, so you can match your room as best as possible. And there's also options like options like wire mold, power, and cable retractors. The Techped series from Middle Atlantic Products, do for conference tables with a cadenza rack, did for credenzas. Uh, this is actually a really cool thing. The first time I saw this in the installations I do, I love those little pedestals. It's like a half-rack system. I can't believe I didn't think of this. Why did we have to wait so long for it? So uh, thank you to Middle Atlantic for sponsoring us. You can find more information about these at middleatlantic.com forward slash hyphen And thank you to our sponsor. All right, so the next article we want to talk about is the FCC. Yes, everybody loves to hate the FCC. Everybody loves to talk about them. But they have recently went and said... That net neutrality doesn't really exist, or at least that's my take of it. Um, guys, I'm going to ask you about this. I'll start with Charlie. Charlie, can they really do this, at, or is the Pandora's box already open and we're down a slippery slope of it ain't free no more, baby?
3: Uh, I'm afraid that uh, I'm afraid that you're right, and that the Pandora's box is open and the proverbial cow has left the barn. I mean, uh, you know, this, the problem is the FCC. Um, ha- has really gone from its traditional mandate of, of being you know a government agency to just kind of make sure that uh, RF didn't tromp on each other to, to really whether they want to or not are, are very much kind of a political pawn and definitely not to get into politics on this show uh, but but you know the, the point is that uh, as administration's change unfortunately the FCC, kind of feels the pressure to change with it, and uh, so I, I think that right now, in terms of net neutrality, uh, we're very much into a point where it's kind of those that can afford to pay to play are the ones that are getting preferred access, and so we've seen recent uh, agreements between Netflix uh, and Verizon, Netflix and Comcast to make sure that, that they have access uh, to the bandwidth that they need to, to provide their service, and and while that's absolutely fantastic in that it keeps my wife from calling me at 10 o'clock at night when I'm on the other side of the country to complain about not being able to to watch the latest video on Netflix, uh, it really stifles a lot of innovation. You know, uh, a lot of these things like Netflix, you know, they didn't start off uh, with the backing of, you know, a Google or, or someone else with really deep pockets. Uh, and so you you really, the fact that the, the internet was kind of, a you know, wild west in terms of, you know, may the strong survive and you know come on in. Uh, you know, I think that unfortunately that those days are starting to to pass, and I and I really fear that's going to stifle innovation long term.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different little startups out there, but but is that part of the problem? Is that there's too many people coming out, and as was infam- infamously said, it's not a dump truck, it's a series of tubes. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You know, I, I, there, there's, there's two sides to every argument. I, I personally think that, uh, you know, we, we need to maybe mandate a certain level, and it sounds like, you know, for me in this article, uh, that what they're trying to do is walk that tightrope of saying, look, here's an established minimum standard that everybody should be able to expect, um, but that at the same time, that people that can, should, or, or need to can, can you know, buy up to that nevel- next level of access. and And I think that if they can pull it off, that's probably the best approach that we can actually hope for.
2: Mm -hmm. I suppose so. Dave, I'll put this to you, that as a manufacturer of power systems and power control systems and and, and that lot, you have to follow certain rules and regulations that may have changed from the early days of development of the electrical grid, mostly to the benefit, but do you see this as something that is really commercially reasonable for the FCC to do, or, or are they really... Just doing it, and Tom—what is his name? Tom Wheeler, bending to the whims of the cable companies, are saying we won't support your lobby anymore.
0: Yeah, I—I I, I think I agree with Charlie's take on it. That you know, it is—it's—it's it's probably overstepping.
2: Hmm.
0: You know, in the sense that it, it is, It's gonna—it's gonna stifle innovation. It's—it's—it's it's, it's an area. Of, you know, you look at the—you look at the Netflix case right now and what they're what they're arguing. You know that's that that pretty much says it all as far as how it impacts their their business and how they're going to do business in the future.
2: Are you guys facing anything similar in in the development of power products that aren't really safety codes, but someone's trying to do something that sort of stifles what you can do in, innovatively with the products, control yeah. or access?
0: Yeah, I, I would say not really. No, we don't mm. we don't run into that because a lot a lot of the things we do are are pioneering. In, mm. in the world of power protection already. So we've not really run into that type of roadblock, so to speak.
2: Now, my question was really coming from, I wonder if they're paying more attention to what content access is than they are the power grid and, and items like yeah. that, which wouldn't be surprising <laughs> to me, actually. Oh, Well, JB, we're going to talk to you a little bit. What is going on here? Are they really concerned about the bandwidth, i.e. the dump truck versus the tubes, or are we really looking at... Content providers finally getting their claws into stopping the wild west.
1: Well, I I think I think there's a couple things to, to keep in mind, and it, and, I, and I don't disagree with with what Charlie and Dave have said. Um, but that but that having been said, you know, let's let's take a slightly different look at it, which is that the FCC is the United States Federal Communication Commission. Um, so it, it only has jurisdiction within our national borders, and. You know, it's it's interesting to maybe look at what another country like oh I don't know I'll randomly select not randomly at all select South Korea um, and look at their online capability profile um, or Japan or or some some of those the Asian countries actually some of the European countries as well and you know you realize that they have much much greater not just bandwidth but service capabilities precisely because they do have more regulated internet capabilities. You know, the, the United States has this weird situation where we have the vast majority of the service providers and the content providers who built the system but the, the pipes, the tubes uh, are actually fairly restricted especially in, again, in, in sort of rural areas or you know, places where there's just sparsely pop, sparse populations. You know, we, we can't all live in uh, Googleville, Kansas um, unfortunately. So uh, a lesson until tell that, that becomes uh, a reality, I, I, think, I think part of what the FCC is trying to do is to say, look, if we don't create some kind of baseline then we are going to be left behind as a country that um, you, will, you will have and, and so, so yes, obviously there has to be, in their mind there has to be sort of a, a pay-to-play capability, but the, the the other side of the equation is, you know, we also are trying to insert ourselves into the conversation so that we can dictate a minimum level of online connectivity. So so some of it is is the minimum bandwidth uh, requirement, although that hasn't been defined. And do keep in mind these are proposed rules. This hasn't actually been adopted yet, but um, but they haven't defined the minimum bandwidth. But, um, but by the same token, they're also trying to uh, create the ability or I, I ask the question as to whether or not the FCC has the ability to regulate peering. And that, I think, is actually the far bigger impl- implication of, of this effort. You know, net neutrality has been banded, bandied around for a while, and, you know, for, on Silicon Valley and, and you know, the, the proto-libertarians of the net may, may not like it. But th- in reality, there was probably always going to be some regulation that was going to happen. But the, the fact that the FCC is trying to insert itself into the peering discussion um, so, that, uh, so that those uh, relationships between content providers uh, like Netflix And service providers like Comcast uh, can, be, uh, can be actually governed and regulated I think that's, that's kind of the other side of the equation Because right now those are completely unregulated The FCC doesn't even have the mandate to do it so, so I think that's what they're trying to do is to say, okay, guys, it, it has been the Wild West. Now we have to create some standards, both for, for the minimum but also for, uh, for the maximum as well.
2: Well, and I asked the question because the early days of radio were pretty wild, uh, and the FCC has gone back to saying that uh, some local radio stations can operate on what were, what were and are existing commercial bandwidth. Is that a sign that they're focusing more on the Internet and its infrastructure and giving up off-air? Uh, or can we get to a point where we can bring it back to an equal, uh, an equal balance? Um, because I have to say I truly do fear that my my, my cable provider, uh, C- Cablevision, is renowned for being draconian uh, sure. <laughs> in, its, in its efforts to stop people. Uh, but can we get back to that sort of innovation where from the groundswell up, and the hobbyists who are far much, uh, far more intelligent than the hobbyists were back in the days of early radio to help us drive that innovation and keep it going without it closing off.
1: Yeah, you know, I'd like to see that, and, and I think there's always been, I mean, I got started in radio, to be honest, uh, back in the <clears throat> several previous decades, uh, <laughs> but... You know, I, I, there's all, for example, there's always been a movement to, to reinvigorate the uh, the community radio capability. Um, you know, the the one K uh, the one K tower argument that's been around literally for, for twenty or thirty years. Hmm. Um, and and certainly, I think that uh, the current administration uh, it is trying to support small scale uh, uh, community oriented uh, communication capabilities. But the fact is, you know, the the Comcast of the world, uh, they don't really care who, who wins elections. They they contribute to both sides. The, they, they always make sure that they're on and, and I'm not trying to pick on Comcast. I you know, that was the first name that popped into my head. But they Everybody all do hates it.
2: their own cable company. We know that. It's they, sort of like a cell company on somebody's lawn.
1: But but diplomatically I have to say this is not about Comcast specifically. All of the cable companies lobby. Uh, the NAB is the single lo- largest lobbying organization, National Association of Broadcasters, the single largest lobbying organization in the country. Um, so, so they are very, very well positioned. Um, I, I think, I think that the the fight is always, has been, and probably always will be over the last mile. Um, in other words, how, uh, whether it's coming in over a coax piece of coax or a piece of fiber, or whether it's a citywide, you know, YMAX, uh if. Or whatever the next generation of, of uh, can't, Metropolitan area uh, wireless technology is going to be yeah, um uh, Yeah, because that works so well, mm. but um, but point being um, you know I think what the FCC is starting to realize is that uh, There's not a single pipe to for the last mile anymore. There are multiple pipes for the last mile and that you, 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 can, you can take the, the argument and uh, the position and not be wrong that maybe this is outside the FCC's jurisdiction. But um, I think what they are trying to point out is, well, if it's not in our jurisdiction, it's not in anybody's jurisdiction. And at some point, uh, this, this is considered a utility. Um, you mm-hmm. know, what happens when phone lines, nobody uses, I mean, I, I don't have a hard line in my house. Um, I only have uh, a cell phone, for example. That is the only way that I can communicate to the outside world. So, what happens for a 911 service? Um, okay, well that has to be regulated for me. What happens if I don't have a cell phone? What if I only have VoIP? Well, you know, okay, the phone regulations don't apply to me because it's Ethernet. Or, you know, h- how does all that work? I think that's part of what they're trying to figure out. Um, I, I'm actually kind of a libertarian at heart. I don't like regulation where it's not necessary, but I think looking looking at the internet as a service rather than as a you know something that you randomly do for entertainment purposes, you know that's what it was twenty years ago. It was for generic communication, and, and but now it's the internet is this. It, it isn't a thing anymore. It's, it's a concept, it's a service, it's a set of applications, it's a business model. So I, I think it's actually very legitimate to say um, somebody somewhere has to regulate that, or the private sector has to develop uh, some set of standards uh, to, 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 to be obeyed uh, for content provision. And, and that's I, it's not an easy question to answer. And obviously, the people who generate the content Um, want to be able to charge as much as as humanly possible and the people who purchase the content don't want to pay anything for it. So I think inevitably they're gonna have to meet in the middle somewhere.
2: Well one of the things that you have dovetailed into was the news factor story. Uh, CEOs need to become customer experience evangelists and I wanted to pick this one up where we were because all of us have been talking a little bit about this when we covered the manual and other things. Dave I'm gonna go to you. It starts from the top, doesn't it? In order for a company to succeed and to have customers who are
0: excited about it, it starts with the guy who runs the place. It does. You're right. I mean, it, it, at every level up through the top, uh, if that enthusiasm is not there, and that interest in in products, new products, serving the customer, understanding the customer, uh, you, you can't you can't put any more importance on that in terms of the success of a company and the success of the individuals within that company hmm. but you're right it's 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 driven from the top down and you know they're the ceo for example in our company and other companies i've worked for one of the things they do routinely is they'll if no one's available to take a call they'll take a call from a customer for whatever reason but to puts you in the seat, and, and I do it to make sure that I understand customers' problems. When you know when there's our our tech support people are are tied up, and there's a call and customer is frantic, I'll take the call. But it gives us the understanding of what they're really going through, and then they you end up having conversations about what they're experiencing, how they like the product, things they can. That that's the only way you're really going to understand uh, your market, your customer base, because you become you can become so far removed. At different levels of the organization, that you you fail to see the forest for the trees.
2: Well, it, it is true, isn't it, that uh, Charlie? They, it is true. You cannot be a CEO or a manager of any division without having that enthusiasm. And if you're not doing it, your staff won't do it, will they? Uh,
3: absolutely. I, I, you know, it it the the big thing with uh, across a, a lot of different uh, tenants these days is is authentic experience right you know when uh, when we were all kids we were happy to go down to Florida and see the fake mermaids in the tank and these days you know that's that's not uh, it's not authentic it has to be real and and people are expecting that same level of expectation from the people that they choose to do business with they want to know that they're not just being sold a bill of goods that mm-hmm. the management actually actively supports this product they believe in this product and uh, and and like Dave said, it, it's got to be throughout the entire organization. Uh, you know, we've seen more and more, thanks to just the the availability and the always-on nature of the internet, where occasionally, sometimes upper management, maybe maybe for say a, an old white dude that happens to own a you know NBA team makes a really yeah. bad yeah, comment. <laughs> you know, just making this uh, up as you go along. Right, right, right. I just, I'm just snowballing <laughs> here, guys. Try to work with me. Uh, you know, make some really, really bad comments. And, uh, you know, years ago, then, uh, you know, never that it was okay, but years ago it might have gotten swept under the rug and nobody ever would have known about it. But these days, we have to make sure that, that we're looking out for the customer at all levels of the organization. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the things that I run into wearing, you know, company logo wear in an airport or, you know, people will come up to me, oh, Sennheiser, you know, I bought the XYZ headphones or, you know, the microphone and you, to no the good with the bad, but you've got to be, you know, ready for those types of customers and let the, you know, comments and let the customer know that that you appreciate their feedback Uh, because in the long term, people have the choice of buying, in my case, any number of different microphones or headphones, and we want to make sure that, uh, that we're giving them a reason why Sennheiser should be the one that they purchase.
2: Well, you, before we went on air, you and I were talking when we were working through some technical difficulties uh, ahead of time. You and I were talking about my experiences with UVA. UVA was the face of Crestron, uh, Crestron of Sennheiser. <laughs> Sorry, I worked for Crestron for years, right. and I always my head that way. Um, was, was the face, And I remember him at the trade show. I remember when he showed up, and his enthusiasm and his willingness to hear everything was fantastic. You know. And back in those days, sometimes he you know, ran right over you with, with information uh, about, you know, no, no, you're wrong, and here's why, uh, which is why I brought the, probably got the crest run thing up, because George Felstein used to do that a lot, too. He was like, oh yeah, I'm going to go right after you, and he wants that argument. Um, but even Felstein had that special quality that as much as he was trying to argue with you, he wanted you to prove it. And that was his way of, of, of reaching out. Uh, I, I always found that fascinating, and, and it was a good lesson in life. Uh, as to how to promote your company, even for AV Nation, how to promote it, that no matter what you get, you have to be able to roll with it and listen to that. Um,
3: I, You know, a, a perfect, a, a, you know, and not to tie up the conversation too long, but a perfect example from the, the our our kid sisters over in the residential world was, uh, was Sam Runco. I mean, this was a, a guy that from the top really drove an entire business segment and built an entire company around his larger-than-life persona and his tequila-fueled parties. But at the end of the day, you know – People knew Runco. They knew what they stood for. They knew that they'd be able to get the support and things that they needed. And to me, it's kind of uh... it's kind of a little bit of a, a bittersweet changing of the guard. You know, when Sam, not to begrudge him selling out to Planar, I mean, that's you know, you take the check and run when you can get it, man. Uh, but you know, to these days, you know, who who really talks about Runco anymore, right? I mean, when was the last time you, that you saw anything? Because now it's just another projector company. And uh, I think that sometimes having that strong strong position at the top or that strong spokesperson, can can make all the difference between a product that's great that nobody knows about and a product that becomes a you know a Kleenex or a Xerox
2: hmm there is that Uh, Dave I'll ask you this as a manufacturer I had an experience with an associate who posted about a, a situation where he was at the airport wearing his his company logo you have a company logo shirt on you're at an airport and he said the name of the company looked at the guy dead in the eye and goes that's well, that's why I use X Y Z, so I don't have to use you guys or something like that. And this is a fairly high level person there. How do you deal with that kind of criticism? Do, you know, do you do you listen actively or are you looking to to prove them wrong?
0: No, I I always take that kind of criticism and and, and to listen actively because that's important. When I don't care if it's one customer and he's and he's an aberration. It doesn't matter. Th- th- that's, an, that's feedback that we can take, and I, I, I cherish that when when someone comes to me with a with a negative opinion because there's a lot of good information there. It might be something we can use to further develop the product. Maybe we're not getting the message out properly. It says a lot, you know. And any input is valuable. Hmm. Uh, you can you know you can choose to disregard it, but you're doing yourself a big disservice when you do that. So, you know, it's it's, it's, it's important, and I, I, I encourage my guys to do the same thing. When they get those kind of calls or they bump into people who say that, you know, ask questions. Listen, ask questions, ask what can be improved, but you you got to turn that conversation around so that maybe there's something we can do to help that customer. That our product is deficient in some way, has some feature that they wanted, and, and it, they, didn't, they don't see it okay, how can we add it? Maybe we can do it immediately for them. And it adds to our, our, the, the value of our product. So it's, it's extremely important to, to listen to that type of conversation. Yeah, and I like that. I mean, I've seen too many
2: examples where people want to, you know, take command of the their conversation when it is really a listening. And most of the time it's a misunderstanding, and you can always get through it. Sort of like the That's rule right. of social media. All right, well, one last story, gentlemen, that we can get to today. This one comes to us as well from EE e. e. Times, but I found it interesting. Startup Pioneer Printed Electronics. This is about a Midwestern town with a uh, a number of graduate students developing printed sensors. These are the kind of sensors that they use on, as they see in the picture there, helmets and other equipment to sense how much uh, impact that individual took, whether it's a a football player or a firefighter or something of that nature. Uh, But this is in a small town that once did printing, and they're now utilizing their knowledge and knowing of a market need to develop A town into a new world or into a new industry. Uh, Charlie, I'll start with with you on this one. What can we do to make more of this happen? Because this is what we've been looking for, right? Um, Infocom just did USA Science and Engineering Festival down in Washington, D.C., in which part of the idea was to get more young people, but people in general, interested in technology and science and know how to do it hands-on and be part of it. This looks like a prime opportunity to make Rust Belts into Tech Belts.
3: Yeah, and then that's I think what they're all trying to do, uh, you know, and, and the key is that we've got to make sure that we've got the right infrastructure in place, whether it's, uh you know, like we were talking earlier with uh, some of the Google communities and things like that, at the end of the day, the community has to kind of get together and say, look, how can we move into the 21st century? Uh, you know, in, in this article, you know, they're they're in Kalamazoo, Michigan. How, you know, lately these days, let's be honest, Michigan tends to be uh, kind of the the punchline of a joke of, you know, with the last one out, turn the lights off. <laughs> uh, and, and rather than and rather than just say, yep, you know what, uh, we're not building cars anymore, it's done, uh, or in this case, uh, you know, print and paper. I think there's a great case in point example here that other industries, uh, you know. Uh, for example, like Xerox and, and Kodak and guys that were up in Rochester, New York, you know, for the longest time that was the biggest employer. That's who everybody worked for. Well, now with managed print and the fact that uh, there's not nearly as many uh, people actually printing pictures, you know, Kodak is is just. It, I think these days is just a patent holding company I don't think they actually own anything uh, and so a, mm-hmm. a town like Rochester could really learn from from this example to say all right how can we take that technology I mean in this case they used to do paper mills where they were printing things on paper well now let's figure out ways that we can print electronics uh, and and I think that the the key is just kind of like in life you know you can't uh, you can't sit still uh, you got to keep moving forward looking for that next opportunity and that's going to take an investment uh, on the, the, the local state and federal Federal level to make sure they've got the resources available to, to get it done.
2: Joel, in IT world and in the integration world, we've been having trouble finding qualified people who want to learn. It's been a uh, <laughs> it's been a struggle, right? And that's part of why Infocom went to where they went. Um, but in your world, can you see more homegrown industries popping up like this for integration, for developing technologies that would virtually carry over to us?
1: A- absolutely and um, you know when, when I first saw the uh, the the stuff coming out of Georgia Tech uh, you know about six months ago about uh, printed circuits um, you know I that I mean, we actually talked about it internally in our companies and ooh, cool what can we do with that um, you know when when for literally 200 or 300 bucks you can actually become a circuit manufacturer uh, and if, you, if your local library has a 3D printer, as a lot of them do, you can actually literally build components. I mean, people are building, uh, you know, obviously industries now are, are building, um, you know, artificial limbs. Uh, there was an artificial heart. I mean, some of the stuff that Disney's managed to create in terms of the the crazy 3D speaker assemblies that they're creating, including all of the components internally. Um, you know, it literally, I, I think the next great... I think the next Apple is 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 literally being built in somebody's garage right now. You know, somebody's coming up with some, and it might be an AV product, it might be uh, a home security product, it might be the next version of whatever the iWatch is supposed to be. I mean, who knows? But um, I, I think this really does take manufacturing and put it at the at the individual level, which is something that is. That's is, that is kind of the one barrier that still hasn't really happened is you know you could you can get some plywood and maybe go down to radio shack but you can't create a design that can be replicated. Um, well you can now. Um, and and so essentially what it's been able to do is is create manufacturing as an application or manufacturing as a service. M A A S. I just pioneered it right here AV Nation take it rolling. <laughs>
2: um,
1: and uh, you know, I, I think I think you know Charlie's point is, is actually a really strong one because the one thing that uh, that Detroit and the Rust Belt's have um, is they have infrastructure and they have process and they have people who know those things. They may they may not have um, what the, you know they may not have the customer base for uh to for for the the brakes for their cars anymore, but if they know how to organize themselves and they know how to uh, create those types of things, then all of a sudden all of those factory workers and all of those designers um, can go home and build those types of things in their garage and say, hey you know those brake systems that we've always never had a way to to prevent from overheating, what if we tried this? And essentially you've managed to create a a, a laboratory that now has millions and millions of potential members in it. So I, I think it's awesome.
2: And Dave, I'm going to leave the last word on this to you today. You work in an industry, of course, and make products that aren't always considered like the sexiest. They don't get the front right. line pages, but they are the most essential elements, usually, of, of a system. Because there really ain't no power, there's no microphones, and there's no right. uh, there's no integration. Uh, how do we promote this to get more graduate students that are in engineering, not just into engineering, but to look at American-based Innovation and bringing innovation and new technologies and manufacturing to these places. Right.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think you start you start before college. You start you know in high schools and, and grade schools, uh, and create incubation centers. Where whereby you know you, you got to have involvement from the community. You got to have involvement from local businesses to get involved with the schools. You know, it was a great story that I saw this morning about you know a high school. Uh, high school class. They had gotten a 3D printer, and I'm sure that was probably either donated to them by some one of the local corporations or businesses for them to use and experiment with. But uh, then they were challenged by you know a great instructor, a great teacher that said, "Hey, there's a you know there's a young girl that is missing her, her fingers, and you know a prosthetic hand or finger 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 assembly would cost you know them fifty thousand dollars. They can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Design something." And they came up with this artificial finger assembly for her hand, and it was it was amazing. But these are high school kids. But that's how you that's how you stimulate them by giving them real world problems. It really takes, and it does take, you know, the, the especially the local businesses to get involved in the schools mm-hmm. and to introduce these these kids to technology, and to see that they do have the ability with their own thinking, because you know they'll think outside the box and and use and use the tools you give them. To come up with something that you know maybe my best engineers can come up with, so it's that's that's where I see what's, what's extremely important that would that would really uh, promote that type of that type of uh, activity in this country.
2: Hmm. Well, we're going to leave it at that. That of course is our good friend Dave Parota. He is Chief Operation Officer of ESP Surgex. I got that wrong, so I'll say it again: ESP Surgex. I got it wrong in the beginning. Thank you so much, Dave, for joining us. Where can folks find you and about the the products?
0: Uh, They can find us at uh, ESPEI.com or surgex.com.
2: There you go. Any Twitter or uh, social accounts?
0: Uh, We are on Facebook and Twitter. There you go. You can find us there.
2: Also joining us today is Charlie Jones. Charlie Jones is the area sales manager for Sennheiser. Thank you so much, sir.
3: Thank you for having me, always a pleasure, and uh, yeah, SennheiserUSA.com is our American presence. Of course, we've got uh, worldwide uh, uh, worldwide sources as well, and we are also on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, smoke signals,
2: you name it, we're all over it. <laughs> there you go. And also joining us, uh, who made a valiant effort to get here, is Joel Bellheimer. He is Vice President System Integration for Pershing Technologies. Joel, I've been showing your webpage and your bio on that page as your sort of avatar while you speak since the video didn't come through. But where else can people find you besides pershingtech.com?
1: Actually, um, not typically on social media, but I will be uh, supporting a series of panels at Infocom on Secure AV this year. So um, if that's a topic of interest to your readers, um, or readers, good Lord, that's how old I am, Uh, (laughs) to your listeners and viewers, um, that will be on Super Tuesday this year, uh, so look forward to speaking with anyone who's interested.
2: Do you know of the, uh, the number to that? Do you know the course number or any of that information? Um, That's all right. We can no. send it to you later. We'll put it in the <laughs> show notes for people who are interested. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, and as one final note, I want to say, I want to thank our sponsor, Middle Atlantic. Aviation is brought to you by Middle Atlantic Products and their tech ped technology pedestals. Middle Atlantic products, what great systems are built on. For more information, middleatlantic.com forward slash nation hyphen tech pod. That's middleatlantic.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. This has been another edition of AV Week, and we look forward to speaking with you very soon.